Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. In earlier shows, we've discussed that wealth isn't merely financial capital. Rather, holistic wealth planning acknowledges that wealth is a combination of financial capital, human capital, legacy capital, social capital, and structural capital. And today, I really wanted to unpack structural capital a little bit more in some of the related topics. Families with significant wealth or family businesses often operate within a network of trusts, partnerships, contracts, and other kind of legal and business entity relationships. So in this context, structural capital represents the family's cumulative understanding of this network and ability to navigate it efficiently. Structural capital is built upon the family members learning about shared entities, policies, and procedures, but requires that family members understand and practice shared decision-making. Sometimes this takes place within a family council. Sometimes it's just family meetings. Some of the other key factors in structural capital include the practice of effective family meetings, competent family leadership, and very thoughtful family leadership transitions. While structural capital is certainly very important, I believe it's the relationships created by it that are equally, if not more important. I've heard this framed as the trustscape. What I really like about this subtle shift is it reframes the conversation from a legalistic, sterile conversation about structures, and instead it focuses on the relationships that are facilitated among the people that are impacted by these structures. Can trust provide asset protection and some tax benefits? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, the single most important reason for creating a trust in the first place really should be to provide a gift that promotes beneficiary freedom. More money alone doesn't really support greater beneficiary flourishing. A trust that's well-designed should really deliver an enhancement to the beneficiary that cultivates a greater maturity and equips them to pursue their own aspirations. For many heirs of significant wealth, the main obstacle that they need to overcome is finding their own voice. They often get caught up in the big, bold dreams of the family founder, and it quickly becomes a black hole functionally absorbing the dreams of those that follow the founder. This dynamic at best leaves a life that's really stewarding somebody else's dream, not your own. The black hole forces a form of silence over the family and slowly erodes the family's energy. I believe that when the founder creates this black hole, it's highly correlated with the symptoms of entitlement and dependency so often cited when criticizing heirs. In broad terms, Intergenerational wealth doesn't really have a strong track record of preserving wealth or actually supporting family flourishing. There are real reasons to fear the risks of wealth or the threat of spawning a generation of trust fund kids. 
History is littered with families that have been destroyed by wealth. I suspect that complicated problems aren't easily explained by a simple explanation, but I believe some of the blame could be assigned to creators who've never really asked the question, what is the most important outcome I'd like my trust to accomplish? Or what is the single most important reason for the existence of this trust? In my experience, when that question isn't really asked, then the tax tail begins to wag the dog. It's so much easier to define wealth simply as financial capital and then begin to engineer structures and strategies to minimize attacks. In earlier episodes, we've discussed how typical planning is generally some form of dump, divide, defer, and dissipate. Assets are dumped on heirs, divided amongst children, while attempting to defer any taxes, which generally results in the assets being dissipated within one or two generations at most. Concerns about the negative effects of unearned wealth transfer isn't new. We all know it's human nature that we generally value things based upon how much they cost us. Thus, wealth that is simply just given to us is valued differently than if we had suffered, sacrificed, and risked for it. There are parables throughout history based upon this concept. In the New Testament of the Bible, there's the story of the prodigal son showcasing an impatient heir that receives their inheritance early but ultimately resulting in a lot of personal and financial destruction. In the book called Entrusted, written by David York, he likens financial wealth to dynamite in three ways. One, it can be used for good or evil. Two, the more there is, the more of an impact it will likely make. Three, the ultimate question is never, will it have an impact, but rather, what kind of an impact will it have? It's very common for wealth creators to attempt to mitigate the negative effects of wealth by keeping the real wealth landscape a secret. They keep as much of the financial information away from their kids and heirs as possible, driven by this deep-seated fear that if they knew the wealth existed, it could cause some sense of entitlement. Though these intentions are clearly good, the real-world implications typically aren't. In fact, a lot of studies have shown that a breakdown in communication is really one of the leading causes of wealth transfer failures. In a study of over 3,000 generational wealth families conducted by Roy Williams, he inventoried the top concerns parents had about the effects of wealth on their children. 60% were worried that their heirs would be too focused on material things. 55% were worried that heirs would be naive about the value of money. 52% were worried that heirs would spend beyond their means. 50% were worried that heirs would have their initiatives ruined by affluence. And 42% were worried that heirs would struggle to take financial responsibility. In this same research, they observed clear differences between successful and unsuccessful wealth transfers. The definition of success in this research was that the wealth remained under the control of the beneficiary. Thus, voluntarily selling a business which converts an asset to cash was really viewed more as a success because it's simply reforming or transforming the wealth. Likewise, philanthropy was also viewed as an informed decision in a voluntary redistribution of wealth. Thus, that was also viewed as a success. By definition, though, roughly 70% of these 3,000-plus families experienced wealth transition failure. A 70% failure rate is a bit of surprise when you think about the amount of professional success that is required to earn and accumulate significant sums of wealth in a free marketplace. These family wealth founders have often had a golden touch. 
But clearly, when you look at the data, the skills required to create wealth are significantly different than the skills required to preserve the wealth and transition it effectively. So let's jump into this data, researching the successful and unsuccessful transitions of wealth across these 3,000 plus families. 60% of the transition failures were caused by a breakdown in communication and trust within the family unit. 25% of the failures were caused by inadequately preparing heirs. 15% of the transition failures were attributed to all other categories, such as tax and legal issues. Do any of those numbers surprise you? If more than half of these transition failures come from a breakdown in communication and trust, we really should unpack that. In this context, a lack of trust didn't mean fraud, dishonesty, or purposeful deceit. Rather, it was a reference to family member reliability, relational sincerity, meaning do the internal stories being told match people's external reality? Sometimes the symptoms of a lack of sincerity might include gossip, false promises, a lack of commitment maybe to see things through. In this context, a breakdown in trust can also be caused by a lack of competence. A family member simply doesn't have the ability to do something. If any of these three ingredients are missing, reliability, sincerity, and competence, then trust within the family is eroded. Now, in terms of communication, effective communication means being able to speak openly and honestly and freely concerning information that's sought by any other family member. The research here is pretty conclusive. When a family leader unilaterally decides that their spouse or their children aren't ready to receive certain information, then they're undermining trust and eroding communication. So let's reset this conversation back to where we started. Parental concerns about the negative impact of wealth on heirs often leads to less transparency and less open communication. Simultaneously, research then has also found that 60% of wealth transfer failures have been caused by a breakdown in communication and erosion of trust within a family. And in terms of resource allocation, time, dollars, and attention, it seems as though the categories of tax and legal consume a disproportionate amount of, of resource considering that it's only responsible for about 15% of the transition failures observed across those 3,000 families. As we've talked about before, a byproduct of significant financial capital is typically complexity. We live in a world of great and increasing complexity where even the most expert professionals really struggle to master the tasks that they face on a daily basis. What surgeon, author, and Harvard professor Atul Gawande observed is that longer training and ever more advanced technologies don't prevent grievous errors. Gawande posits that the remedy is the humblest and simplest of all techniques, a checklist. In his book, The Checklist Manifesto, he starts by showcasing how the Air Force used checklists to help pilots fly aircraft of mind-boggling sophistication with ever-increasing safety outcomes. He also goes on to showcase how leading hospitals have adopted checklists to revolutionize the consistency, safety, and patient outcomes. So if flying planes or advanced surgical procedures can be positively impacted by a checklist, couldn't we come up with a checklist to help us with the probability of success transitioning our financial capital to next generations more successfully? Absolutely. Author and family coach Roy Williams 
created a wealth transition checklist that I think is an awesome place to start the conversation. You can obviously refine, update, and customize any checklist to your specific situation, but why entirely reinvent the wheel? Williams built this list after 40 years of working with high-capacity, highly affluent families, so it's loaded with incredible wisdom. So let's run through the 10-point checklist, starting with number one. Does your family have a mission statement that spells out the purpose of your wealth? Two, does your entire family participate in the most important family decisions, such as defining the purpose of your wealth? Three, do all family heirs have the option of participating in the management of family assets? Four, do your heirs understand their future roles? Have they actually bought into those future roles? And do they look forward to performing those roles? Number five. Have the heirs actually reviewed the family's estate planning documents? Number six, do your estate planning documents distribute most of the assets to heirs based upon readiness, not age? Seven, does your family mission include creating incentives and opportunities for heirs? Eight, are your younger children encouraged to participate in the philanthropic grant-making decisions? Number nine, does your family consider family unity to be just as important as family financial strength? And finally, number 10, does your family communicate well throughout the entire family and regularly meet to discuss issues and changes? Now, this checklist, those questions, they're huge topics. There's actually a lot there that you could unpack, though there aren't necessarily easy yes-no questions. However, in broad terms, the research suggests that a highly affluent family that can answer yes to at least seven of those questions is in a good position to transition their wealth successfully. If you answered yes to three or fewer of those questions, you're much more likely to fall into that category of 70% of the families that fail. Now, if you're somewhere in between, then you're like most families that would significantly benefit from efforts made to build trust and improve communication. Let's revisit a statement I shared at the beginning of the episode. The single most important reason for creating a trust in the first place really should be to provide a gift that promotes the beneficiary's real freedom. A trust that's well-designed should deliver an enhancement to the beneficiary that cultivates a greater maturity and equips them to pursue their own aspirations. So isn't it shocking that respected family wealth consultant and author James Hughes noted that 80% of the trust beneficiaries that he's polled over the years consider their trust to be a burden. I can't help but notice the similarities in those figures. 80% of beneficiaries are burdened by their trust, and ultimately 70% of families fail to successfully transition wealth. There clearly has got to be a relationship there. One approach families can use to improve outcomes is to focus on the relationships that are facilitated among people who are impacted by these legal structures. For example, the obvious players include the trustee, trust creator, and the beneficiary. However, I wanted to highlight an important role that's often overlooked. This role could be played by the trustee or the trust creator, but it doesn't have to be. The role that I'm talking about right now is the regent. What's a regent? Well, a regent was a ruler while a young king or queen was coming into maturity. Within the context of the trustscape, a regent would be focused on the beneficiary's maturity and their ultimate independence. The regent's goal would be to grow the lives of the beneficiaries so that they become mature, generative family members 
able to leverage the assets within the trust into a more flourishing and full life. This is a huge task that's often underappreciated and uninventoried or unassigned. Family wealth transitions are emotional, and it can be difficult to even get started. However, there's a lot of wonderful resources available to you. If you wanted to explore checklists of wealth transition strategies or air preparation, reach out to us. If you want to discuss the important role a regent plays in the overall trustscape, we'd welcome that conversation. Reach out to me or your team at DeLap. We can share our experiences and the tools that we've discovered to help families flourish with their wealth transitions. As always, thank you for your time. We hope that you found this content helpful. We'll be back in two weeks with more new content. So until then, 